Okay, so ancient letters, um, there, there was, a, there was a, a rule around ancient letters, kind of the way that we have rules today. Uh, there's certain formats that you need to follow, certain, certain plot lines in a story that you need to, that you need to have. They, they've got to be there, otherwise it's seen as bad literature. So the ancient rule, one of the, one of the ancient philosophers that set up, okay, this is how we write, this is what we're doing. One of the rules was that you should never bring God into a story unless the problem of the story is so big that only a God could solve it. So, so the whole idea is, is, especially in Greek literature, when you've got the pantheon of gods, that, that you can't just call on Zeus to fix something unless it's only Zeus that can fix it. It should be that, that if there's another way, if the humans can, can muster a way to fix the problem, then the humans should fix it. And that's the way the story should be written. So in ancient letters and in ancient writing and storytelling, this was a rule. You shouldn't bring God into the story unless the problem's so big that only a God could solve it. And this is what Paul is doing in the letter of Romans. Paul is showing us that the problem is so big that only God can solve it. So I want to start off with Slack. I'm really, I'm really excited about you know, the Slack communication, and I want Slack to be just this conversation. So it's not just I ask a question and you guys answer. It's, it's I want your guys' thoughts. What are you thinking about? What, what's going on? What is God reminding you of? What scriptures is God pulling and cross-referencing for you? I want all that to come up on Slack, but I'll start us off with this question. What problems are so large that only God could solve them? What are the problems that are so large that only God can solve them? We're confronted with the reality in, in Romans 3, which I'm going to read in just a moment, of universal unrighteousness, unfaithfulness, uh, it's, it's, hum, it's a humbling reminder that no matter how far advanced we get as a, as a society, no matter how globally uh, constructed we are or connected we are, or no matter how technologically advanced we are, basic problems still exist. Evil still affects every single one of us. In our culture, we don't talk about evil enough. We actually need to talk about and be honest with the fact that evil still exists affects us. Um, what are problems that are so large that only God can solve them? Um, <laughs> I love these answers. <laughs> um, inflation, student debt. I am right with you on that one. Uh, understanding your spouse, hate, damnation, like literal damnation, war. Yeah, absolutely. Let's keep going. Um, Let's, while you guys are going with that, let's actually listen to Romans, because Romans brings us face to face with the reality that evil still exists. If Paul was writing to us directly, the text would start off with, are we as Christians any better off? So I encourage us to listen with a humble heart as we read this passage, Romans 3, 9 to 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged, earlier in the letter, Romans 1 and 2, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says is, speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth will be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So some of the other things that are so large that, that God, uh, so large problems that God, only God could solve them were uh, understanding your spouse, um, <laughs> single mothers struggling to be super moms with so little support or appreciation. Um, problems that, that God, that we need God for. But in in this text, we often read this text and, and, and we bring it with a North American lens. We come at this text with a North American lens. Why? Well, because most of us in the room are North American. Um, and, and we read it through the lens of our culture. We, we say, like, no one's righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And we, and we scratch our heads a little bit, being like, but wait a second. Some people seek God. And then we, and then we go, like, Wait, no one does good, not even one. Wait a second. My neighbors do good. But the Bible must be right. But my neighbors do good. And we, and we try to figure this out. Because in our lens, everything here is actually sit, sitting on a moral category. What we've done with this is we see this verse, if we think about it at all, we see, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it's written. So that word sin, we consider predominantly as a moral category. I did good, or I did bad. I did good, or I did bad. There is the moral category, and we then say, if we do enough good then God's going to be happy with us. And if we do too much bad, then God will be sad or disappointed with us. Or worse, if we're more traditional, God will be angry with us. And we'll, right? So it's a, it's a, the category is morality. And that's true for the North American church. That morality is the category that this entire passage falls under. And then we really do have to scratch our heads and say, how did Paul make us all convicted of immorality. How are we all guilty of immorality? I'm a pretty good person. You're a pretty good person. I know we screw up, but really to this degree? Like, what is the immorality that's going on here? The problems that are so large that God, only God can overthrow. Someone says addiction. Someone says only God has overcome evil and will overcome evil. Absolutely. So I was visiting a friend on the West Coast years ago, 
And they went to some liberal Christian theology school. And I was like, oh, really skeptical of everything that, that came out of her mouth because, you know, she's a liberal. And, and she said in this conversation, she said, something that I've discovered in my studies is that all sin falls under one category. And I was like, okay, what do you mean by this? And, and she said, biblically, not culturally, biblically, all sin falls under the category of idolatry. First commandment, you will love the, or, or yeah, um, you will love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God. Okay. So, so the love is not romantic love. We're not talking about Jesus is my boyfriend. We're talking about you will love, serve, cherish, honor, regard. You will love the Lord your God. You will put yourself subservient to the Lord your God. There's a first command. Every other command is a breaking of the first one. That's why when any rabbi in Jesus' time was asked what the greatest commandment was, which was a common question that was asked to all rabbis, including to Jesus, the every good rabbi would start off with, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God. And then every good rabbi would modify their interpretation of the rest of the text with their secondary. That's why it was so significant that Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second one is like it. Jesus wasn't asked the second one, but he added it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. And that's because that was the formal question of the day. But the first one was always get your worship right. All sin is idolatry. When, as Christians, we judge people by their morality, we actually miss the root that causes immorality. So think about it like this. If my child is constantly stealing snacks from the cupboard, okay? That's an unconceivable idea <laughs> that my children would sneak snacks from the cupboard as one of my children is just chewing on nachos right now. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, you're allowed to. It's fine. I give you permission. <laughs> so if my child is constantly and chronically sneaking food from the cupboard, and I'm like, stop, you can't do that. And then they're constantly going and sneaking food from the cupboard. As a parent, I have to determine what's the root cause of my kid needing food from the cupboard all the time. I actually need to have a conversation with my child to say, are we feeding you enough at dinner? Is, are you getting enough food? Like, are you chronically hungry? Or is there another thing going on here? Are you just addicted to sugar? And, and I have to discern what is the root cause of the disobedience. If we simply put sin in a category of morality, what we do is we chase after all the behaviors. Oh, stop doing that. Stop doing that. Oh, you need to do that. Oh, you need to fix that. And we miss the root cause that's actually driving us to our immoral behaviors. So God is doing something um, God is doing something that allows us to be 
sorry, inconceivable just showed up. Sometimes Slack distracts me. <laughs> God is allowing me, allowing us to get to the root issues. Idolatry stays hidden behind our moral failures. Even the simple ones, hatred or envy. The ones we talked about last week in Romans 2, strife, maliciousness. Idolatry is at the root of all of these things. So all sin, idolatry, is the root of all sin. Paul's conception of sin is not based on moral sin, but he's basing it on religious sin. He's not looking for moralism, but he's looking for righteous worship. No one seeks for God. All of us have turned aside, become worthless. What happens is when we come into our, our religious structure, we're like, okay, if I go to church every day, and if I, if I pray enough, and if I read my Bible enough, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm good enough to make sure that, that I, I honor my spouse, and I did this, and did this, and did this, we're like the rich young servant coming up to Jesus saying, all of your laws I obeyed. I did everything. And Jesus knowingly pushes past all of that and says, but the root issue is idolatry. Go, sell everything you have now. Well, that's not written in the law. Yeah, I know. Idolatry. You, what you're doing is you're setting yourself up as the one who's earning your salvation. You're like, I'm doing it. I'm the one who's doing it. So Paul is saying, no, no, no. It's your worship. Righteous worship. We are all convicted of worshiping the wrong God. Sometimes even worshiping ourselves. And when we worship the wrong God or worship our desires or worship what we want over God, that's when we commit moral sins. It's, it's because I want to and I feel like I can, now I go and commit moral sins, whatever that moral vice is. Because I am the master of my own destiny, because I am saying I want to live like this. I'm committing moral sin. Someone says the root, the root cause of idolatry is pride. I don't need God. And yes, that would be the same thing. Um, the, the lesson of the rich young ruler is he should have shut up after the first answer. Well, yeah, there, there's that. But still, it's, it's, it's really true. We have this, this sense of I'm going to accomplish righteousness. I'm going to get it. Sin is idolatry against God that leads to moral imperfection. Deuteronomy 5, 7, you will have no other gods before me. Yet, we could put everything before God. We put the, the urgent before God. We put the tangible before God. The pressing, the loud kid, the phone, the busyness, the business, the rush, the need to impress, the financial burdens, the responsibilities we carry. We put all these things in front of God and say, God, help me... God, help me accomplish my responsibilities. Wait, what, what position did I just put God in? I put God as subordinate to me, under my responsibilities. Oh, wait a second. My responsibilities are actually my God, and I'm trying to use the thing that I call God to get me to them. Well, this is upside down and backwards. Paul starts to say, each one of us has done this. It's not things that just go away. But the challenge for the Christian 
is to, in our hearts, put Christ as first. And you will notice everything else falls into place. Matthew 6, But seek his kingdom first, and all these things will be added unto you. There's an orientation and an organization in life that happens when I don't put my impulse, my will, my identity, my desires, my career, my profession, my finances, my responsibilities. I don't put any of them as the central identity marker of my life, but I seek Christ first. No one seeks God like that. Jesus be the center of all of it. God, do not let anything that presses against me become my replacement for you. God, do not let anything that presses against me become my replacement for you. What elements of life conflict with your worship of God? Yes, this is a vulnerable question. Yes, I do want you to answer it on Slack. And yes, your name does get attached to it. But honestly, we're a community here and every single one of us have this. What elements of your real life press in and conflict with your worship of God? The passage is a grave reminder of the universality of our participation with evil, our sin, our idolatry. Even if we've accepted, you know, we've said, oh, I accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, we're still held to account by God, and we can't even open our mouths in defense. Remember, Romans is written to Christians and Jews. God fears. Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, the whole world may be held accountable to God. Oh, what elements of life conflict with your worship? Someone says it's easier to deal with the tangible, and it absolutely is. It's so easy for us to get caught up in just what's going on in life. It's so easy for us to be a part of this world because we're created in this world and for this world. And, And it's so easy for us to miss that the position of God, Lord, ruler. What elements, um, what elements of, of life conflict with your worship? Busyness, being busy, my child, family, friends, work, social, hobbies, these things all clothed in. Social media, poor use of free time, to-do lists, sleep, sleep, social media, hobby, trying to keep my house in order taking care of myself, striving, trying to just be better. My faith in the seeming realities of stress, financial, relational, mental illnesses impinging, pursuit of goals. All these things press in, they put into conflict, and yes, we are a people in conflict. I think we have to recognize that. It's, Christianity isn't just like, oh yeah, there's no more conflict in my life. No, we are a people in conflict and it becomes a decision that we make with the core of our being saying, I am going to centralize my life and my hope on Jesus Christ. God, don't let anything that presses in against me become my replacement for you. 
See, this universality of the participation of our sin gets all of us. And we're like, oh, right. It's not morality, but it comes from me putting me above God. It comes from me putting reactions above God. Someone says, I'm learning how to turn to God first when my children and grandchildren are going through situations, and I want to help. See, this levels the playing field because guilt is universal. Access to inclusion to God is also universal. Ha! That's cool. Wait a second. Because you are universally, all of us, are guilty as charged so that no mouth can, can dispute God's judgment of us. All of us are universally charged. It also means that it was on God to create for us a way. The, the whole idea of, of salvation doesn't come from, oh, I just want to be saved from my bad actions and my bad behavior. It's actually, I want to be saved because Jesus is Lord, and if he is truly Lord, and I'm not in, I need to be in. I need to find a way into that kingdom, into that reality, into that world, where God is making all things right through the person of Jesus. I need to be included in that. So my moralism isn't, isn't what's going to get me in. What was God's way? How does God get us in? See, we're universally held to account, but we're indeed universally offered the same salvation, even the same salvation that the people in the world are offered. See, as a self-righteous individualist Christian, it's too easy for me to justify and condemn others. It's too easy for me to just look at the morality model, justify myself, and completely overlook or forget about the significance and importance of others. I think we need to keep in mind that in sleeping so well, we can function, and looking after our kids and keeping our space neat so we can have a clear mind are all forms of worship. Yes, they follow after, absolutely, they follow after. This is what the Lordship of Jesus is. It's not about being morally perfect, sleeping the right amount of hours, and blah, 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 da, 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 da. It's Jesus is Lord, and that means I can finally rest. That wasn't in my notes, but that comes from slack. And it comes from the word of God. When I can see that, that Jesus is Lord, I can finally rest. I can finally have peace because I've started to understand what God is doing with this universal guilt and universal open door. Watch this. Let's look forward to what Paul is saying to where God unravels the problem that only God can unravel. Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been shown to us apart from the law, what we understand as morality. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God is through putting faith, and I'm going to add a couple words here to help us understand it, because we hear the word faith and go, oh yeah, I believe. It's, it's through putting life-altering, changing, reorienting faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, for everyone who believes. I'm going to pause there for a second because some of my team was like, you actually need to pause here for a second and I'm going to listen to their advice. The righteousness of God has been manifest apart from our moral strivings. 
the mom guilt that you feel because you, you're trying to be the best mom that you could be and you're trying 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 and you never feel like you measure up. The righteousness of God is revealed apart from this seemingly moral construct. He says, no, no, no. No, it's being revealed to you through your life-reorienting faith in Jesus Christ. Here's how you are made righteous. Look to Jesus above all. He's the one who's going to write everything. He's the one who is including you in his plan. He's including you. Let me continue reading it. There's, there's the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. You all are in this, are in this moral problem. You all have idolatry. And you're justified by his grace. He's, he's done a workaround. He's like over here. Here's how you get in. It's a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Huh. Propitiation. Good. So as a payment by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his patience, in his divine forbearance, he passed over the sins, this moral category, for a time. But it was to show his righteousness so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's about aligning our worship. It's no longer about striving to fix myself. It's about aligning our worship and say, I'm going to see Jesus as Lord. He's the only one that can bring me out of this mess. For men in the room, if there's a level of arrogance, we, we, we tend to say, uh, oh, well, I can fix this. Overgeneralization, but overgeneralization, I know. Some women say I can fix this too. But as men, we tend to say, oh, I can fix this. Oh, give me a bunch of rules that I have to live by and I'll do it. I'll just go ahead and do it. And the cyclical problem that we fall under is when I become the most humble person in the room, it's because of something that I did, which at the very definition shows my root of pride. It shows that I am still considering myself to be my own savior. The only way to break that cycle is to see Christ as Lord and say, I rely on Jesus as Lord of my life. He's the one who's the only one that can fix me. The reason that we have God in the story is because the story is such, has such a problem in it that only God can fix it. I'm stuck. I can't defeat my own pride. I can't defeat my own self-reliance. I can't defeat my own, my own senses. Only by submitting them to Jesus can I do that. So how are we made righteous? The law and the knowledge of good and evil did not, did not make humanity like God, like they were promised by Adam and Eve. It didn't make us like God. It made us subjected to our own wrath, and also the wrath of God. It made us subjected to our own wrath. Get this, I talk to non-Christians all the time, and you know what pisses them off the most? When somebody's wronged them. It didn't make us like God. It just made us able to wrong each other. 
The current religious structure says good boys and good girls get good gifts at Christmas and bad boys and bad girls get bad gifts at Christmas. That doesn't actually change whether you're a good person or a bad person. It simply points out that each one of us is bad. Now you're just aware of it. God says, if you put no other gods before me, my grace is offered to you in the person of Jesus. Richard Rohr, Catholic theologian, says, uh, relying on the great fix in what we do, even the name of God, oftentimes keeps us in our brokenness. It's interesting that we truly just need to say, okay, God, this is for you. This is for you. Someone else suggested that faith is a verb in the Greek. See, we've just been read the riot act. We ought to despair. We've just been called out. We're the comfortable ones, the same ones who are the wrong ones. The shame is equal for all of us, and so our approach to others should be humility. Here's the humility. Well, here's the final question for you in Slack. What's good about God's kingdom? What's good about God's kingdom? And while you're answering that, I want to give us the marker of humility. The kingdom of God was established and perpetuated without you. It was established and it was perpetuated without you. God doesn't need you in order to fulfill his kingdom, to fix this world. He wants you beyond anything else. The kingdom of God was established without us. It didn't take the righteous Jews to make it happen. It doesn't take the the evangelical right wing of North America to make it happen. The kingdom of God doesn't take promised church to make it happen. It doesn't take a, 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 a deconstructionist to happen. The kingdom of God happens without us. But you are invited into it by the grace of God. And he says, yes, I want you in it. I want you in it more than anything else. And I've made a way for you to be in it. It's through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, back to our verse, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Christians are at their best when they highlight God's action in the world. God's established his kingdom. Gates of hell is never going to prevail against his kingdom or his church. He promised that. So now we look at this and we say, what has God done? What is good about God's kingdom? Everything is good about God's kingdom. Truth, love, we receive help in God's kingdom. Unless my wife is asking for help. Um, we, see, we have forgiveness, grace. My failings and slip-ups don't stop God. God's kingdom's beyond the linear, and so our logic, if we do this, then we do this, and this will happen, is often powerless. God's kingdom is God is ruling, and I'm included. I'm without condemnation. I have a purpose and a mission. We could be encouraged that God and his kingdom are not bound under the control of our logic, and he may not need me, but man, he used individuals. And if he didn't need people like the prophets or Paul, would he have used somebody else? Yeah, he would have. 
We're best when we highlight what God is doing. All the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign, and he will reign, and he will reign forevermore. The reality of the gospel today is Jesus faithful to God's covenant. He died and was resurrected and single-handedly established an eternal kingdom that will destroy evil. And Jesus will allow us to become part of that by the action of our faith. Look, if you're in the room today and you have not yet recognized that the deal about being a Christian is not about trying to be good enough or being at church enough or getting it right, but the deal about Christianity is, is putting our hope in Jesus as the one who's going to be the one who fixes. The author and the perfecter. The one who makes it right when I can't do it. If that's you today, I encourage you strongly to say, Jesus, you are, I am willing to acknowledge you that you are Lord of my life. I give you the control and I'm not going to take it anymore. Choose for yourself today who you will serve as for me and my house and this house at Promised Church. We will serve the Lord. God, if there are people in the room right now who have seen Christianity as a religious structure where we have to try to impress you, God, I pray that you would replace that thought with the idea that Christianity is about focusing all of our worship and all of our attention on you and your kingdom. God, I pray that you would convert us Change our thinking around our own egocentric ideas and move them towards you as Lord, Savior, and Christ. Jesus, I pray that you would transform each one of our lives. Even those of us who have intended to say, Jesus, you're my Lord, you still have so much transformation that you're doing in our life. God, help us be receptive to your leading. What is it that you want me to do? How is it you want me to participate? What is it that you want me to give up or give? And Jesus, I pray that you would bless this congregation, grow it in power and in strength and in wisdom under your rule. In Jesus' name, amen.